So this is our very last uh, part of the, the guardrail series. This one here is the final part. And I actually think it's actually a very, very important part. It's probably the most important guardrail that we have. So just in case you've missed some of the series and you don't understand what a guardrail is, a guardrail is actually a traffic safety system. And the guardrail is there to protect and direct you when you're traveling on the roads. So if you hit a guardrail, yep, a little bit of damage, but you don't actually wipe out or, or destroy yourself. So a guardrail is there to keep you from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. And we've discovered through the course of this whole entire process that guardrails need to be in place for other areas in our life, right? We need to have guardrails in our marriage. We need to have guardrails around our finances. We need to have guardrails in our parenting and how we discipline our children. In every area of your life, you need to have guardrails. So what I wanted to talk about specifically is how do we have a personal standard of behavior for ourselves? You see, because the guardrail is personal. See, I can't tell you what kind of guardrail to specifically put in place for your specific situation. It's something that you decide. You don't decide for me, I don't decide for you. It's a decision that we make and we have this kind of a, a guardrail that sits in our, our mind and in our conscience and every time we cross into it or bump into it, it dings and warns us. So I want to talk just briefly about which particular guardrail we're going to be looking at. And King Solomon in the Bible, he was considered the wisest man in the world at that time. In fact, a lot of people today still consider him to be the wisest man. He wrote books uh, in the Bible like Proverbs, Song of Solomon. He also wrote um, Ecclesiastes. And he wrote about everything. Like, there was no subject he didn't touch. He wrote about relationships. He wrote about friendships. He wrote about marriage. He wrote about children. He wrote about um, education. He wrote about everything possible, the hopelessness of life. He wrote about hope. He wrote about everything possible. And he says in his writings, if there is one thing you're going to take away from it, you can forget everything else I've said. But the one thing that I want you to remember is found in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. And it says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Now, what if that's true? Like taking out the religious context and all that sort of stuff, what if that is actually true? What if everything you do, every action you have and every thought that you have, uh, every word that you say actually comes from your heart? If everything that we do comes, originates from within us, then these words are, are vitally important to us. We need to guard our heart. Guard the within part to make sure that whatever comes out is good, is right, is just. So the question we're going to look at today is, what does it look like to guard your heart? How do we do that? How do we guard this inner stuff so that the whatever comes out is going to be good? So if you turn with me to, um, to the book of Matthew, and... We're going to kind of jump about a thousand years away from Solomon. And we're coming into a life where you've got Jesus and his disciples. And they're all just hanging around together, doing their discipling and Jesus thing. So, you know, we're talking about they're healing people, they're preaching, and they're teaching. And everywhere that Jesus went, a crowd of people would go with him. And in this crowd would be many people, and they would follow Jesus everywhere he went, listening to what he said. Because what he was speaking and what he was saying was so different to anything they'd heard, and it was so life-giving, and it was so amazing to them that these people would follow them. And there were 
hundreds and hundreds of people, probably thousands of people would troop around following Jesus. There's also a small group that kind of tagged along with these guys, and they are your religious leaders. So they were your priests, the high priests, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, scribes. They also would follow along with this crowd, um, trying to find a way to shut Jesus down. One of the things that they would try to do constantly was to get in between Jesus and the people, to put a wedge in between them. Because if they could get Jesus alone, then their plan was to arrest him. They couldn't do it while the crowd was there because the crowd loved Jesus, and if they tried it, the crowd would become a mob. So they just couldn't do it. So they had this, this little game that they used to play with Jesus, and they would come to him with questions, trick questions, and try to get him to trip up, right? And try to get him to, to, to make mistakes. So one day in particular, these couple of guys come up this question, and they kind of wheedle their way through the crowd, and they get to the front, and they come to Jesus, and they say this in Matthew 15, verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, everybody else in that crowd on that day knew exactly what they were talking about. But when we read that, we're kind of a bit like, what? Like, I'm sure that Mary and Joseph taught Jesus how to wash his hands before he ate, right? And I'm sure the disciples' parents all taught them how to wash their hands before they eat. So the question kind of seems a bit odd to us. But what you have to understand is that in Old Testament law, the high priest the priest, and in fact anyone who was doing sacred work in the temple had to do ceremonial washings. They had to make sure that their hands were always clean so that they could do God's work. So Jesus wasn't actually breaking any law. It wasn't one of the Ten Commandments. He just wasn't paying attention to their law, to their man-made law, because they had decided it's not just the high priest and the scribes and the Pharisees and the people doing the work of God who had to have clean hands and do ceremonial washings, they had decided everybody had to do it. One of the things that's quite fascinating is that in the 450-odd years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, they had invented an additional 600 laws that people had to follow, supposedly from God. Anyway, so Jesus is not paying any attention to their traditions. And, he comes, and Jesus says to them in verse 3, and Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? You see, they had their own traditions that they had decided to elevate to the level of the law of what God had established. But in establishing some of their laws, what they had done is they completely violated God's laws themselves. It's a bit like this. You have a teenage daughter, right? And they're a little emotional and stroppy because that's what girls are like. And so this teenage daughter's been really disrespectful and rude to her mom. So her dad comes to her and he says to her, do not be disrespectful to your mother. Do not speak to her disrespectfully. And the girl says, okay, well, I heard the guardrail series at church, and so I'm going to put in a guardrail in place. And the dad thinks, this is amazing. This is going so well. That's awesome. What guardrail are you putting in place? And she says, I'm never going to speak to her again because that way I can't accidentally be disrespectful. And the father's like, no, that's rude and is disrespectful not speaking to your mother again. So what this girl was wanting to do is not have to talk to her mom. So she was trying to put in a guardrail that was going to violate that her own father's rule of don't disrespect your mother. The Pharisees 
and the, the religious leaders in those days had actually done the same thing. There were some laws in the law of Moses that they did not want to follow, so they had invented their own laws and made them more important. So they were breaking the law to keep their traditions. And Jesus went on and he says to them to explain to them what he meant when he said, you want to break the command of God for the sake of your tradition. And in verse 4 he says, For God has said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, then they are not to honor their mother and father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. You see, the religious leaders had come up with a tradition that was going to violate the law of God around honoring your mother and father. In fact, they were pretty crafty, and this is what they had done. They had decided that regardless of how much wealth you had, you could be extremely wealthy or moderately wealthy, and so long as you verbally, so you didn't have to write it down or sign a piece of paper, so long as you verbally said out loud, I am going to dedicate all my wealth and all my possessions to the temple. And if you said that, that means that it could only be used for the temple. But they had this, this little clause in there that also said that as long as you lived, you could use your wealth and you could use your possessions to support yourself and your immediate family. And so what was happening was their elderly parents were coming to them. You have to think about the time that this was done. All those thousands of years ago, there was no support system. If you stopped working, there was no way for you to gain additional support. So these elderly parents would come to their children and they would say, can we please live with you? Or can you please provide food for us? Or can you please provide shelter for us? And they would go, oh, gee, mom and dad, I'm really sorry. I would love to help you, but I have dedicated all of my possessions and all of my wealth to the temple, um, and I can only use it for myself or my immediate family. So, no, I guess I can't help you at all. About then, Jesus, of course, has just confronted them with the fact that you invented a man-made tradition to violate God's law, you hypocrites. Whenever God, uh, Jesus says, you hypocrites, that's the end of the conversation. So the Pharisees and the leaders and stuff realize they've actually made a monumental mistake. The crowd start laughing at them because they've just been humiliated. And they begin to sleep back, and they're kind of mumbling and grumbling to each other, saying things like, I thought that was a good question. Who's like, who came up with that question? Well, I thought you came up with that question, and I didn't come up with that question. That's just a dumb question. And they wander off because they're quite, uh, they've been humiliated. And then in verse 10, Jesus calls the crowd to him, and he says, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. You see, when you put the wrong things into your mouth, it's not going to defile you. All it's going to do is make you sick. You see, defiling you has got nothing to do with food, and it's got everything to do with your relationship with God. You see, that is where the defilement comes in, is how you treat God and how we've treated God. One of the things you need to remember is that Jesus is actually a hinge. He hinges the old covenant to the new covenant. He hinges the Old Testament laws to the new, te to the new testament. So what he did is he's taken the old of what Moses had done, and he was introducing through his whole ministry the new of what God is about to do. And he kept leaving breadcrumbs every time he had encounters with people, little breadcrumbs about how he was going to change everything. See, the law of Moses 
was all around a contract of the people staying clean before God. It was a vertical relationship. Is God happy? Is God happy? Is God happy? And Jesus comes along and he says, it's actually not about, is God happy? God is actually more bothered by the words that you use and the actions that you use to other people than he is about whether or not you've washed your hands before you eat. So the crowd, of course, are completely stunned because this is totally new for them. They've never struck anything like this. Their whole life it was about, is God happy? Have I washed my hands? And in fact, now they've been told, um, God's actually more concerned about the words that you say than he is about washing your hands. So they walk off. And so Peter comes up to Jesus and he's like, now I fully understood everything you said, but the other guys, they, they didn't get it. You know, they, they didn't understand. So we would really appreciate it, Jesus, if you would just kind of sit down and, and, and explain it all to them, because I understood, but they didn't. So Jesus then comes along and he sits down with his disciples. And I think he was having a little bit of fun with them, because he says in verse 16, are you still so dull, Jesus asked them, don't you see that what enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out the body? I'm sure by now the disciples are rolling their eyes because, yes, Jesus, we understand the digestive system. And then he says this, But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and it's these that defile them. So when he's talking about heart here, it's a figure of speech. He's talking about the things that put you at odds with God, the things that put you in a, in, a, um, in a discontented relationship with God is not anything that you eat, anything that you put into your body. What does it is the things that are coming out of your body. It's how your words affect other people that God loves, that God is concerned with. So I really want you to pay attention to this next bit. This is actually really, really important. And if you've been daydreaming because, you know, we're trying to struggle through daylight savings, or if you're at home and watching online and you're a bit distracted, you just need to not miss this bit. This is really important. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, uh, adultery sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. You see, mistreating other people is what defiles you before God, not eating food with unwashed hands. You see, God gets more offended and upset and hurt by how we treat other people, the words that we use that harm other people, the actions that we do that harm other people, the things that we say that harm other people, because that behavior comes out of our heart. That is what upsets God far more than the word, things that you eat. If you think about it as a parent, and if you if you aren't a parent yet, you'll experience this when you have your own children. When you see someone saying something or deliberately hurting your child, you get very angry. If you hear your child speak about themselves in a way that's harmful, you get angry, right? Do you not think God feels the same way about you and about the people around you? That is what will defile you. You see, according to Jesus, our behavior will eventually mirror what is in our hearts. That's why you have those moments when you say dumb things and you do dumb things. There's something sitting in your heart. See, eventually our behavior will mirror our heart, and eventually the behavior that's in our heart will flow out through our actions. Now, the interesting thing is you guys actually already know this. You may not know it in those specific words, but you've actually seen this happen in people's lives. 
Do you know someone who has completely burned down their career because of the words that they've said at work? Do you know someone who has alienated their children because of their actions at home? Do you know someone who's completely destroyed their marriage uh, because of their actions outside of home? You see, we see this all the time. We see people behaving in a way that's destructive to themselves and to other people. And those very people, in fact, to be honest, some of us are those very people. And we look back and we think to ourselves, why did I do that? Why did I say that? How did that happen? Why did those words come out of my mouth? Where did that come from? And so I just kind of want to wrap up these last little five or so minutes about four emotions that should ding your conscience. That when you see these emotions, when you identify these emotions in your world, you're actually rubbing up against the guardrail. This is you hitting the guardrail. And you need to do this in the safety zone before you actually end up um, destroying yourself and other people. Because if you do not deal with what is going on on the inside, eventually it makes its way on the outside. And you'll hurt yourself, and you'll hurt the people you love, and you'll actually offend God. So these four guardrails that when you bump up against them that you need to deal with are guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. Now our tendency is to actually wait until we do something or wait until we say something. But that means you'll put the guardrail into the danger zone and we actually need guardrails in the safety zone, right? So we're going to deal with this while it's in the safety zone. So when you identify this operating in your life, you actually need to deal with it. See, guilt says, I owe you. It leads to putting up walls and dishonesty between us. What happens is, I know I've hurt you, or I know I've done something. You may not know I've done it, or maybe you do know, and there is guilt there. And so because of that, I distance myself from you. And this can happen in marriages. And what happens is it goes like this. What's wrong? Nothing. What's wrong? Nothing. What's wrong? Nothing. Well, it's kind of something, but I, I just can't even talk to you about it. And what happens is, is we begin keeping secrets. And we begin having distance in our relationships. Anger says, you owe me. You see, anger is... You've hurt me. You've taken something from me, and I'm angry about it. So either you pay me back or I'm going to pay you back. The thing with anger, and you probably all know this already, is that anger is never isolated to the relationship of origin. See, you get hurt by someone. Maybe you didn't like the way they broke up with you or you didn't like the way that they, uh, you found out about them, I don't know, doing something or they took something from you. And what happens is, is anger is mobile, so you carry that anger into every relationship that you have. And you carry that anger into every relationship long after that person is gone. They've moved out of your life. You don't see them anymore. Maybe they've died, whatever it is. But you come across somebody else who reminds you of that person, and you're still angry with them. And you hold other people hostage to the anger that you hold to somebody else. Greed says... I owe me. It's what Craig was talking about last week. It says, 
I owe me. Everything I have, the assumption is that everything I have is for my own consumption. And you know what happens with greed is that you hear about people who are in need. You hear at work about how someone, you know, we're raising money for this person because of this bad thing that's happened in their life. Or the church comes to you and they say, we're trying to raise money for this. Or you see the guy doing the collection for cancer on the side of the road. And you have all of these things. And what it is is that you don't give because you don't want to write a check. And as much as your heart is breaking for this situation, it's not going to break in your wallet. And the reason why it's not going to break in your wallet is because you honestly believe that you are yourself. You need to look after yourself first. What you need to be careful about... Sorry. Sorry about that. Technical difficulties. So what you need to understand, though, with greed uh, is that in your life... If you value stuff more than the people around you, more than your children or more than your spouse or more than friendships, is that it will ruin your life. And the reason why it will ruin your life is because they are being hurt by your obsession with an object, with something else that you have. And what happens is, is that eventually you will die and they will take your prized possession, the thing that you love the most, and they will sell it. And they won't get a good price for it because as far as they're concerned, it was just something that was a bad memory. Jealousy says, life owes me. Somebody got something that I deserve. Somebody else got that pay rise. Somebody else got that promotion. Somebody else got something that I think I should have got. In fact, I was going for that promotion and they didn't even ask me. They just gave it to this other person. And so you have this feeling all the time is that I deserve it, and somebody else got it. Life owes me. And the absolute worst part about jealousy, and this is the thing that we never talk about, we don't even talk about it to our closest people in our life, is that there are times when the person who got something that you wanted that you can barely be nice to anymore, and something bad happens, on the inside, you kind of celebrate a little bit. You're kind of glad that their life is falling apart, or that they didn't get something, or things didn't go well for them. And that's just awful, isn't it? And so we have these guardrails that we bump up against. And this is one of those messages where it's not like you're going to walk away going, yay! This is one of those messages where you have to actually go home and think about it and look at yourself. Now, if you are not a Christian, if you're not a Christian in this place and you're not a Christian um, watching online, then you know what? You probably don't even care what Jesus says about this. In fact, you're not a Jesus follower. You have not signed up to any of this. So you don't even have to listen to what I'm going to tell you about this. If you are a Jesus follower, if you are someone who has signed up to follow Jesus, um, then yeah, you need to listen to what I'm about to tell you and you need to follow through. There needs to be action. You need to do this. This is not a suggestion. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want Jesus to make your life better, if you want him to make you a better husband or a better wife or a better friend or a better mother or a better father or a better employee or a better child or daughter or whatever, if you want that, then you need to actually follow through because it's not enough for you to just hear what Jesus says. He says, follow me, do what I do. And the thing is, I'm gonna tell you four ways, when you identify these guardrails, when you've bumped up against these, what, are, what do you need to do when you realize and you recognize and you identify that you've got some of these operating in your life? And let me tell you now, you're not gonna like it. You're not, you're gonna hate it. You're gonna be so mad at me by the time I'm finished because it's precisely the opposite of what we feel like doing. So guilt. What do we do with our guilt? 
we confess and not to God. You see, God already knows. If you come to God and say, God, I want to confess that I hurt so-and-so or I took this from someone or whatever, God's not going to sit there and go, oh, my goodness, I didn't know that. He's not going to call the angels over and say, who was recording this because I completely missed it. He's not going to do that. When we confess, the confession that brings healing, and when we confess with confession to do with guilt, is we actually need to confess to the person that we have done this to, the person that you owe. And you know what? It will damage your reputation. It absolutely will. But it hopefully, it'll be temporary. When you brush up against a guardrail, it's a temporary minimal damage as compared to no guardrail and completely wiping out into a ditch. Now, ultimately, when you do this there and you confess, there's going to be a measure of chaos all happening around you outside there. But when you confess, there's going to be a measure of peace in here. And yeah, like I said, it takes, your pride's going to take a beating. But if you can do that, then all of this chaos out here will get worked through. And you will work through it and will dissipate. And that peace will grow. And if you do the hard thing now of confessing, you'll set yourself up for success later on. So with anger. Now you already know what anger is. When you are angry, you've got to forgive, right? You have to forgive. See, forgiveness is identifying specifically what was taken from you and then deciding that they don't owe you anymore. Like, I don't know what situation, I don't know what's made you angry, I don't know who you really, you know, want to punch in the face or get back what they've stolen from you, whatever it is. But what you need to do is you need to take a list and you write down specifically what they owe you. What is it that they owe you? Then you put that into an envelope and you write across it, debt cancelled. But I... But that's like letting them off. Yeah, it is. That's exactly what you're doing. You're letting them off. You're not going to let them live rent-free in your head anymore. You're just letting them off. Do you know who else you let off in that process? Yourself. You let yourself off. With greed, how do we overcome greed? We give. We write some big-to-you checks. Do you know what a big-to-you check is? So a big-to-you check is a, an amount of money that is big to you. It might not be big to me. It might not be big to Gina, but it might be huge to Madison. So it's only big to you. It's got nothing to do with the actual amount. But you write a check that is big to you, and then you give it away. And the reason why you do that is because we aren't going to consume everything for ourselves. We believe as Christians that we don't trust in riches of this world. We don't trust in the money of this world. We trust in God to provide for us. Jealousy. We say that life owes you. If we're going to be honest, it's not that we think life owes us. It's that we actually believe that God owes you. We believe that God gave somebody else something that he should have given to us. Maybe your sister-in-law married extremely well and has a wealthy husband. Maybe your brother-in-law got this great big promotion and you never got it. Maybe they got this great house deal. Maybe your flatmate is moving on with their life and you're still stuck in this dead-end job. And what you think to yourself is that God actually owes me. God owes me because he didn't give me something and he should have. The thing you have to understand is that life just happens. Life happens. There's good things and bad things and it happens to everybody. And instead of becoming bitter and spending the rest of your life comparing your bad fortune to somebody else's good fortune, 
What you need to do is you need to offer it to God. And there are people in our church who I've seen do that. They have been offered something that was pretty terrible. They're, they're, you know, like with Pastor Mark and Julie, they're going through a really terrible situation. And instead of complaining and comparing the fact that other people who are not following Jesus are not dealing with this kind of cancer or anything like that, do you know what they did? They've gone to God and they've gone, God, this is the situation. What can you do with it? And that is what we need to do. And how do we overcome it, though? How do we overcome jealousy? We celebrate. And we celebrate out loud for the other person. The guy who got the promotion, you're going to write them a letter. Dear Frank, congratulations on getting that promotion. As you know, I was going for that promotion also. But I am genuinely happy that you got the promotion. Congratulations. You stick it in an envelope and you give it to them. But Trent, I don't feel genuinely happy that he got it. No, and you won't. But you're going to behave the right way to ensure that your heart begins to flow the way that it's supposed to. You see, we're going to make sure that anything that's in our life, in our heart, will not pollute us or pollute our soul. Now, some of you are going to have to do a little bit of mirror work. And that's when you look in the mirror and you go home by yourself, because this is a by yourself kind of thing. This is a you and God journey kind of thing. This is a personal journey issue. And you're going to take some time. You're going to go home and you're going to do some mirror work. And when you bumped up against some of these, you're going to go, guilt, you are not going to rule my life anymore. Because I'm going to confess to so-and-so about this. And then you make that time and you actually do it. Yeah? And then you say, anger. I am so angry at this person, but you are not going to rule my life anymore. Because you know what? I wrote the list and I've canceled their debt. They don't owe me anything anymore because you are not going to rule over me. I'm not going to take this anger into every relationship that I have. And greed, I am going to become so almost unhealthily generous. I am going to give as much as I can wherever I can. Every time somebody's putting their hand out for something, I'm going to give to it. And you know what? You're not going to wait until you're going to be cheerful about it because if you actually waited until you became a cheerful giver, you're never going to give. It's not how it works. That's not where the cheerful comes from. The cheerful part comes from you give and then you look and you see what God does with it and that what brings joy into your life. And jealousy, you're going to look in the mirror and you're going to say, you know what, congratulations for Frank. You know what, jealousy, you're not going to rule my life. So today, I'm going to celebrate Frank. In fact, I'm going to call him up now and I'm going to tell him how great it is that he got that promotion. I'm going to actually look for ways this whole entire week that I can celebrate out loud for Frank because jealousy, you are not going to rule my life any longer. And that's how we do it. We bump up against a guardrail, we identify what it is, and we take action against it. So why don't you stand to your